0: Amen. Well, happy Thanksgiving weekend to all of you. It's a good thing for us to set aside time to center our minds and hearts on Thanksgiving. It is good to live with a heart full of gratitude to God for the good things that he does in our lives on a regular basis. And one of the good things that God has done for you today and for me today is to bring us to this place where we can sit under God's word or we can sing and pray and partake of the Lord's table because we desperately need the Lord. Every hour we need him, and this hour perhaps most especially as we look to the Bible. And so please join me now as we pray together for God's help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are completely good. You are merciful and you're gracious. You are slow to anger and you abound in steadfast love toward your people. You are utterly faithful to us. Even when we are not faithful to you. And We praise you and give you thanks for that. We praise you and thank you that you relentlessly pursue us. That you are always at work by your spirit in our lives to change us. To correct us when we are wrong in our thinking. To affect change in our hearts when we're wrong in the things that we feel. We praise you and thank you that you are faithful to bring us to a place where we can genuinely say that the nearness of God is my good. So, Father, we pray that as we look to your word now, as we look to this Psalm that Asaph wrote, that we like him. In spite of every challenge or any bit of suffering or pain that we have experienced, that we would be able to say that, that to be near you is good for us and that you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Work this in us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I love Psalm 73. Many people do. It is a favorite text of. Many Christians for a reason. I think one of the reasons that it is so popular, one of the reasons that it is so moving for us is that it so resonates with our experience. It is also breathtakingly honest. The psalmist Asaph, his honesty is unsettling. And it's you might even say a little bit unnerving at times. Especially for those of us who have come of age or have cut our theological teeth in the modern evangelical church. A lot of what this man, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote is unnerving. And so I don't really feel the need to do much by way of introduction to draw you into this text. I think simply reading it will do the job. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And as you are flipping there, I'll make just a couple of brief comments about even the current brief sermon series that we find ourselves in through the book of the Psalter. I, for my part in this, am preaching two psalms from each of the five books of the Psalter. And so today we find ourselves in the first psalm of the third book of the Psalter, which is comprised of Psalms 73 through 89. Now that you had a moment to flip, I will read God's word for us. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I don't really have an outline today. That might shock some of you. It's a little bit strange for me. This feels very free form. But what I really want to do is just go through the psalm. Not exactly verse by verse, but pretty close. And we'll just progress our way through. I will be giving you headings of sorts. uh, Just some phrases, some sentences that can maybe give you some handles to hold on to. I hope that this time is helpful to you. We'll begin our time by looking back to the inspired heading of Psalm 73, where we read about the author. We read that a man named Asaph is the one who wrote to compose this song. Asaph was of the tribe of Levi. He was a real man in the history of Israel. He lived in the time of King David. He was of the tribe of Levi, which many in the room will know that the priesthood came from that tribe. David, King David, put Asaph in charge of the worship music that was performed at the tent of meeting. So this is prior to the building of Solomon's temple. So not only was Asaph in charge of worship music, you might say, including psalms that David had written, he would have been in charge of seeing to it that those were sung well by the congregation, even performed well, perhaps for the edification of the people of Israel. But Asaph not only did that, he wrote psalms himself. There are 12 psalms in the Psalter attributed to this man. Psalm 50 is the first in the Psalter that we come to written by Asaph. And then the other 11 are found consecutively in book three of the Psalms. Psalms 73 through 83 were all written by this man. And now as we move down into thats just a little bit of background information for you you can read about Asaph a little bit in even the book of 1 Chronicles. As we move into the text now in verse 1, verse 1, I would say, functions like a sort of disclaimer, almost like a warning that Asaph gives. He says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He wants to start there by saying, Look, okay, this is what is true. This is where I ended up. Truly, God is good. He is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. He is good to his people. But he's going to go on. He says that. And then as he begins, even in verse two, truly, God is good. But you should know that there was a time when I was not sure that he was. What's happening in this psalm, friends, is we are getting Asaph's reflections back on his reaction to life. He is encountering things in life that are hard, things in life that are difficult, things in life that he sees to be unjust, unfair. And he is responding to those things. And he writes of that time. This is how I responded to life. He is reflecting back on every wrong thing he thought. And he's reflecting back on the wrong things that he felt as well. And then beginning more pointedly in verse two, Asaph describes where he was as he's looking back on himself and on his life. Truly, God is good and he's good to Israel and those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I was not doing well. As for me. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He was in a precarious place. Verse 3, we read more pointedly that he was envious. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant. And I was envious of the wicked when I saw their prosperity. So this is real, friends. This is real talk. Truly, God is good. That's where I ended up. There was a time I wasn't sure he was. I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the wicked. I did not like my life. I did not want my life. I like their life. I want that life. And God, I'm contemplating doing whatever it takes to have that life, even if it means changing everything that I believe about you. That's real. You ever been there? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. There was a time when I wasn't sure that God is in fact good. The psalmist Asaph, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, don't forget that piece. These are the real thoughts of this man. And they are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God at the same time. Both are true. God, by his spirit, in his wisdom and his kindness to us, has immortalized this song. We are getting like the curtain pulled back and we are getting to look at the innermost thoughts and feelings of a man a man of the congregation of Israel, a man in leadership amongst God's people, we get to see his innermost thoughts, his innermost feelings during perhaps some of the darkest moments of his life. And it's interesting to me, just as a Christian and certainly as a pastor, that in our modern church context, especially in America, in the West, we do not allow one another to go here We don't allow one another to go where Asaph, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes. We don't talk like this. We discourage one another from ever talking like this because we think it impious or something. So let me be clear it's not okay to doubt God, it's wrong. He is utterly faithful and good and true. It is wrong. It is wrong to question God's goodness because he is completely good. I've already said that Asaph, in reflecting back on his life, is cataloging wrong things that he thought, wrong things that he felt. So we're not sitting here and reading this, applauding this man. But we can not sit here and read this and identify with this man. Because we all are sinners like Asaph, Was a sinner. And because life is often hard. While it's not okay to doubt God. And it's not okay to struggle. On the one hand. It's normal. To doubt. It's normal to wrestle. It's normal to struggle. And there needs to be. I I am very concerned personally. That this is the case in our church. Because that's on the one hand. All I'm concerned for is this local body. I know that Ron agrees with me. There needs to be room in the church for people to talk the way that Asaph writes in this song. There needs to be room for this. Not that we just pat one another on the back all the time and encourage people to doubt more. That's not what we mean. But there is compassion. And there's honesty. Because we've all been here. There may be some of you who are here this morning Thinking these same things. Now of course. In saying all of this. I want to kind of chalk the field right. In saying this discretion needs to be exercised. There is such a thing as common sense. This does not mean. Just because we want to be real. And we want to be able to talk like this. Doesn't mean that that's just like a license. For you to just kind of explode all over everybody. It's not what we mean. There is room for it. This kind of real wrestling. And this kind of real struggle. Asaph writes what we think and what we feel. To put it this way, it's like it's what our walls or maybe like the inside of our cars or those pillows that we scream into. What those things here. He writes down. And this probably goes without saying, but it needs to be said. God is big enough to handle this. So as we move now into verses 4 through 12. Asaph is just going to describe the arrogant, the wicked people that he envies. He envies them. He wants to be them. He wants their life. Why? Because he looks around and in comparing their life to his, he's like, I'll take that. Not what I've got. Verse 4. For they, the wicked, the arrogant, they have no pains until death. They don't even know what it's like to suffer. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're well fed. No fear of going without. They have luxury and abundance. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. Everybody in the world except these Arrogant, wealthy, wicked people. Everybody seems to be in trouble, but not them. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They seem to be exempt somehow from the suffering that we all go through. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're proud. Violence covers them as a garment. They just do whatever they want and harm others. Their eyes, this is a great expression, their eyes swell out through fatness. This is how much opulence they have. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're foolish. But it doesn't seem to matter. Things are going well for them. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens so they even set their mouths against God. They say things. They blaspheme God. doesn't matter. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. See, we're confused because it's like, OK, well, there's no judgment from God. What's going on here? And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most? High? Maybe God doesn't realize what's going on he's not doing anything about it. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. Always at ease. And they increase in riches. That's Asaph's perspective. On these arrogant, wicked people. He envies their life. Because his life from his perspective is quite different. And it is not as good. He then turns to think about himself in verse 13. These two, these are real words. All in vain, he says, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I have pursued righteousness. I have sought the Lord. I have aimed to do my duty. I have aimed to discipline myself. Fill in the blank. I have done this. And I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. I'm trying to live for God. And it's been a waste of time. I've worked, I've fought to keep my heart clean and my hands clean. And it's been for nothing. What have I seen for my striving after righteousness? What have I gotten for all of my working? What have I gotten for all of my fighting to follow God? Verse 14. Here's what I've gotten. Instead of riches and opulence, instead of ease, all the day long, I've been stricken. And every morning I'm rebuked. So I am trying to live for God and I'm stricken. I'm trying to live for God and I'm rebuked every morning. In my pursuit of righteousness and in my striving to honor and please God, all I've known is hardship and suffering and discipline and correction. That's been my portion in my lot. The wicked do whatever they want. They don't give a rip about God. They don't pursue righteousness And yet everything goes well. What is the deal? Right. This is what this man is wrestling with. He's wrestling with what he perceives to be injustice from God. He's wrestling with the fact that his life has been hard. He's known pain. So. I was tempted in my kind of punchy way to like welcome you this morning and say, you know, hey, did everybody have a great Thanksgiving? Wonderful, let's talk about pain and suffering. Right? I mean, because this is what we're dealing with here. In all seriousness, we're dealing with real talk, real compassionate talk about pain and suffering and difficulty, and God's role and place in this, and God's faithfulness through it. That's what this is about. He says then in verse 15, a couple things here. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he's saying, I exercise restraint. Remember, this man is in a pretty lofty position. He is essentially the worship leader for Israel. I exercised restraint and discretion. This was necessary because I was a leader. I mean, I could have led people all kinds of astray. If I had said what I thought at this time, if I had not used discernment, right? See, that matters. There's a time and a place for this conversation. But then also you can kind of sense, at least I can. And you've got the text in front of you so you can reason with me here. Like in the tone and in the flow of of what he's writing, you can sense some frustration that he felt about that. Because he's talking about in vain. I have tried to keep my heart clean and in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. Like all I've been is stricken and rebuked. And if I had said, I'll say what I think. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I couldn't. I was sort of muzzled in one sense. This man is frustrating. Struggling in life. And so at this point, I want to kind of not hit the pause button, but maybe as an aside, I want to make a couple of brief observations before we jump right back directly into the text. Observation number one. Asaph was thinking in terms of retribution. Asaph was thinking in terms of retribution. I'll explain what I mean. Retribution thinking goes something like this. The more good I do, the more good I get in this life. The more bad I do, the more bad I get again in this life. Friend, brother, sister, hear me. If you think that way, if we think that way, we will all go insane. Because it is not in this fallen world. In this Genesis 3 world. Things are no longer the way they ought to be. And with sin. Like wreckage and ruin came into the world. And fairness went away. There are people who do a lot of good and suffer horribly. Now let me just go ahead and. Anticipate the objection in your mind. Hold on, brother. We're Bible people here. There's no such thing as a good person. Okay, true. High level. But on a relative sense, in this life, there are people that do all kinds of good all over the place. Not everybody is equally wicked in what they do. Again, we can't throw away just common sense, right? Wisdom comes from God. So there are people who do good and suffer terribly. There are people who are Christians who have been born again by the Spirit of God, love the Lord with all their heart, are seeking imperfectly, but really to live for God and be a blessing in a local church, and they suffer day after day after day after day. And there are people who are not at all Concerned with doing good. And they live extremely comfortable lives. Second observation. Whenever we face suffering and pain, we are inevitably confronted with questions about God. Whenever we face suffering and pain, we are inevitably confronted with questions about God. Why? This is true for every human being, okay? This is true for believers and unbelievers alike. Universal pain and suffering come, you're confronted with questions about God. That's because when we hurt, when we suffer, the big question in our minds and hearts is why? It's the why question. Why is this happening? And when you ask that question, why? You're asking about cause and you're asking about purpose. And when you are asking about cause and when you're asking about purpose, you are asking about God at the most fundamental level. Now, we could get into a conversation, happy to do this at the door after, about primary and secondary causes and all different kinds of agencies and all that. We can talk about that. But at the bottom of it all, When you're asking why, and you're asking about cause, and you're asking about purpose, you're asking about God.
1: So that wrestling, kind of high
0: level, it goes something like this. If God is God, as he has revealed himself, then he is both sovereign and good. But then when we encounter evil and suffering from a human perspective... From a fallen, human, limited, finite perspective, we conclude that either God is good, but he isn't sovereign. That is, he wanted to stop evil. He wanted to stop suffering, but he couldn't. Or we conclude that God is sovereign, but he's not good. He's got evil purposes, in other words. This is how we wrestle. This is the conclusion that the world draws. One of the greatest issues in the minds of most people when it comes to thinking about God is this problem of evil. You tell me there's an all-sovereign, all-good God, then explain suffering to me. That's what people say. It's legitimate. ASAP is wrestling with that. But there is a third way, friends. There's another way to think about this. God is sovereign and he's good. Write that down, full stop. He has created a universe in which evil exists, but he never does evil, nor is he the author of it. And in his sovereignty and wisdom, God works through even the evil intentions of creatures to accomplish his good purposes. And how all of that hangs together is mysterious. You want to leave room, too, right, for mystery. This doesn't mean that we can't make definitive statements. This doesn't mean that we can't stand on all kinds of rock everywhere in our theology. Of course we can. But there are some things that are so far above our pay grade that only God knows that we best not try to answer the question in a definitive way. Because when we try, we damage people. We hurt people. And we end up dishonoring the Lord. The Bible is clear about the human cause of evil and suffering. Let's write that down. The human cause of evil and suffering is clear. Sin. At a human level, we have done this to ourselves. So that's why on the one hand, it's right to say, Hey, you've got a problem with wickedness. You don't like suffering. Look in the mirror. That's true. From a human love, The Bible is also very clear about the character of God. And the nature of God. Namely that he's perfect. That he's holy and pure and righteous. He's good. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He's all of those things. He is abounding in steadfast love. And he's utterly faithful. The Bible is crystal clear about his character. The Bible is also crystal clear about the ultimate purposes of God. He's going to save a people. They're going to be with him forever. They're going to worship him forever. They're going to love and enjoy him forever. And he's going to love them and enjoy them forever. And it's going to be perfect. He is about his glory above all things. It's about the fame of his great name. He is unswervingly committed to His glory and to the eternal good of His people. We know that's true. And we can rest there. You can go to sleep there. However, and this is an important however, the sovereign, what we might call decreed will of God, how things unfold in perfect detail from God's perspective and in His mind, Those things are not ours to know. He hasn't revealed those things. And therefore, there is mystery in how all of this unfolds in all of its detail. This third way that I'm describing right now is the most humble and best position to maintain. God is sovereign. God is perfectly good. And we don't understand everything. We know his character. We can trust him. We know his purposes. They will not be thwarted. We can rest in God. And we encourage one another with those truths as we wrestle with suffering and pain. So now back into the text more specifically. In verse 16, we begin to see a a turning point in the psalm. Asaph has been letting us in. Innermost thoughts, feelings of his. His struggles, his wrestlings. So he says, but when I thought about how to understand this. Like everything he's been describing. It seemed to me a wearisome task. No kidding. Until, he says. I went into the sanctuary. Into the presence of God. And then, in the presence of God. I discerned. Therein And there, in particular, I think he's referring to the wicked in the context. He's referring to the wicked, arrogant people. The context makes that plain as we move into verse 18. Things have changed for Asaph in the presence of God. His perspective has changed. He was given wisdom and insight into what's really going on. Verse 18, he begins to talk about the wicked. Truly, you, God, set them in slippery places. They are in a precarious position, really. You make them fall to ruin. He's talking in an ultimate sense, right? They might prosper in this life for a season, but ultimately you'll ruin them. I know that now. You've shown me that. You've given me that perspective. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. All that prosperity, all that pleasure, all that fatness. Eyes swelling out with fatness, right? As he said earlier, it's gone in a nanosecond. It's over. You destroy them in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors. Their end will not be pleasant. It will be a frightful and a fearful thing. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's like a nightmare what's going to happen to them. But not only has Asaph been given wisdom and perspective by God with respect to the wicked, his perspective has completely shifted with respect to himself, right? He realizes his error. I was wrong. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, I was bitter towards you, God. I wanted all these things and I didn't have them. My life wasn't going the way I wanted it to. I looked at wicked people. They were prospering. I was aiming to follow you. I was stricken and I was bitter. I was wrong when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish, she says. I was ignorant. I was bitter. I was brutish and I was stupid. God, before you in the things that I thought and the things that I felt, the things that I wanted to say. So you can look back at everything he cataloged In verses 4 through 12 about the wicked, arrogant person and say, "Okay, Asaph, I see what you're saying. When you said that, when you wrote that, you realize now that you were bitter. You realize now that you were brutish and stupid and foolish when you thought those things. What He's saying. I was like a beast toward you, he says. So the question has to be asked, like, what happened? Happy to this man. How'd you go from where you were? Feet nearly stumbling. You're in this horrible place. You're bitter. You're stupid. You're envious of the arrogant and the wicked. And you're just thinking that your life in pursuing God has been an utter waste of time. How did you go from there to having your perspective change like that? The answer is God did that. God did that for ASAP. It was the presence of God that gave him that perspective. As it's it's been said many times in many different ways, the only way we can ever understand life is to then to contemplate God, I should say, and then come down and contemplate ourselves and what we see. We must understand everything in light of God, who He is, His nature, His purposes, if we're ever going to understand anything rightly. That's what happened here. This man was in the presence of God and everything changed. God gave him wisdom. God gave him insight. He wasn't doing well. As I might say, he was ready to pump the faith. Done with this. And God showed up. He faithfully and relentlessly pursues his own. Verse 23, you can see where he's going. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. God, you've got me. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Praise be to your name. God did this in this man's life. This is a great reminder to us. Of the gospel truth. That it is God's faithfulness to us. Not our faithfulness to him. That will carry the day. The gospel. The good news. Tells us that our salvation. Is the work of God. From beginning to end. He caused us to be born again. To a living hope. He. Chose us before the foundation of the world purely out of grace and love. Predestined us to receive an inheritance that will never perish. He sent His Son. God the Son took on flesh. Why did He do that? He came to accomplish salvation. He came to live a perfect life under the law that God requires. He came to die the death that lawbreakers deserve. So that it could be done. It's finished. He rose triumphantly from the grave. Conquering death and sin and Satan. So that in him we too might be resurrected to eternal life with God. And it's over. The gospel tells us that the finished work of Christ is then applied to us by the Holy Spirit of God in the new birth. The merits of Christ are applied to me. The righteousness of Christ is applied to me. I really died in Him to the law. I don't owe any penalty anymore. All of this by faith. All of this by sovereign grace as God gives us eyes to see by the power of His Spirit. All of this. This great plan of redemption and the fact that God relentlessly and unswervingly pursues his people is all for the praise and the honor and the glory of God Almighty. If you need encouragement this morning, you're struggling mightily in life, you're struggling with sin, you feel bitterness just welling up in your heart. On the record. Look to things like this. Look to the honest confessions. Of a man of God. His genuine wrestlings. His genuine struggles. And then see the utter faithfulness of God to this man. That God has, had him and has you. That God is the one who gives us wisdom, gives us eyes to see and changes our perspective, which brings us to the last four verses of this psalm. And I don't know that there are many sweeter verses in the Bible than these. Keep in mind where this man was. I'm going to read these verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? Answer, no one. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I wanted everything that I didn't have. I was envious. I coveted left and right. I was bitter because I didn't have the life I desired. And now I don't want anything else but you because you are all that I need. God did that for him. My flesh and my heart may fail. They do. But God. God is the strength, literally my rock, the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Again, I see now, God, the end of the wicked. I see it. I was a fool to envy them. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell of all your works. To which we can only say amen. And I trust that when you read that. Or when you hear that read. Is your heart not just welling up within you? Does your heart not well up within you? And does your mind not immediately say. That's where I want to be. I want to be there. I want to be there in verses 25 through 28. I want those to be like my life verses and describe me and my perspective and my outlook. Don't you think that? Don't you want that? Whom have I in heaven but you know one? There's nothing else that I desire on earth besides you. I used to want all kinds of stuff. But you, God, I know are all that I need. You're my salvation and my rock and my refuge and my fortress and my provider and my glory and my joy forever. My flesh and my heart, they may fail and they will. By that, certainly our physical bodies fall apart, no doubt. But my flesh, the sinful part of me, wages war against my spirit and my heart. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Right? Prone to lead the God I love. But, here we have it: God is the strength, the rock of my heart, In my portion forever. There's no reason. Hear this. There is no reason for fear. When your Redeemer and your deliverer will never fail you. There's no reason for fear. There is also no reason for envy. Or for covetousness, when you know that the only thing, the only one that you ever really needed will never leave you and never forsake you. As Asaph has reflected back, we see his perspective change dramatically. We've considered at least in brief, how God is the one who did that in his life. And it's pretty remarkable. Like It's the kind of 180 that is inexplicable apart from sovereign grace. The man who once envied the arrogant and the wicked is brought to see therein that it is not good. And the man who once questioned God was ready to walk away from God is now brought to a place where he says, to be near you, God is my good. I have made you my refuge, that I might tell everyone of your works. I was questioning that you were even good at all. And now I want to give my life to telling people of your righteous good works. Friends, as we land the plane here, it should be noted, like, don't lose sight of this, right? That God did this in Asaph's life through pain and through suffering and through affliction, not apart from it. So this is Bible truth right now. This is not me giving you like pastoral wisdom. This is Bible truth. Our God uses pain and he uses suffering and he uses difficulty to accomplish his good purposes. That is gospel truth. Why it is this way? Again, we don't fully understand it. But it's the clear revelation of scripture. Our salvation. We preach sermon after sermon on this. Our salvation was accomplished through suffering. Through the suffering of the Messiah. The Lord Jesus. And it is through pain and suffering and difficulty. That we are purified. It's through pain and difficulty and suffering. That we are sanctified and grown in the faith. Through it all, make no mistake, God is absolutely faithful and we can trust him. We can rest in Christ and hope in Christ. And through it all, we rely upon the Holy Spirit to do his good work in us through pain, through trial, through suffering. So when we come to the Lord's table here in just a few moments, we're acknowledging and proclaiming a lot of things. Like when you walk down this aisle... To this table, this is not just some rote, perfunctory thing you're doing. This is a participatory thing that you are engaging in. You are coming in faith. You are coming believing a lot of things and proclaiming to everybody else in this room a lot of massive things. You are coming to the table saying, My heart and my flesh may fail, and they have. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I believe that. You are saying that though we, God's people, have failed Him too many times to count, He has never and will never fail us. You're saying that when you come to the table. You are proclaiming to all present that there have been times when you and when we have been foolish and we have been bitter. But we together today in faith can say that the nearness of God is our good. You're saying we are saying that through Jesus Christ, we have made God our refuge so that we might tell of his works. And you, we, in coming to this table are saying, God, I know that you hold my right hand and I know that you guide me with your counsel. And I know that when all is said and done, you will receive me to glory because of Christ. And then after we partake of the Lord's table, because of all these awesome things, we go in peace. Let's pray. Our Father, on this Thanksgiving weekend, what better thing could there ever be than that? To have peace with you. And to leave this assembly in peace, knowing that in Christ we have been fully and unshakingly reconciled to you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives. We pray that you in your perfect wisdom and in your sovereignty would use even difficulty and hardship and pain for our good. And we pray that when we do suffer and when we encounter things that are not the way we want them to be, we pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us a godly, heavenly perspective on pain. We pray that through it all, we would trust you. We pray that we would not doubt you. And we pray that we would say through it all that to be near you is our good. These things are so far above us, God. You've got to work them in us. And we pray that you would for Jesus' sake. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.